I am so excited to be here because I love Dodgel and Sarah. You guys are so blessed with the pastors that you have. And y'all are in my neighborhood because I love that. We live like, depending on the traffic lights, five minutes or seven minutes away. And it's awesome. I love that. So I want to share with you a story that happened several years ago in my life. Before my husband and I moved from Michigan to Henderson, uh, we lived back in Michigan, and I um, worked at Spring Arbor University, and I was the leader over student leadership and student development stuff and all kinds of crazy. And one of my students one year, it was about this time of year, he was a freshman student, and he was getting ready to go home for Christmas break for the first time since he had come to school. And I was passing him out in the campus one day, and I just saw this look on his face, like something's not quite right there, you know? And I asked him, I'm like, James, what's going on? And he said, I am not excited about going home. And I'm like, you haven't seen your family, you know, for like almost three months since you came to school in August. How can you not be excited about it? And he said, I'm not, I don't like change, and I'm just not excited. And I said, well, do you want to talk about that? Because, like, what has changed? I didn't really know what he was talking about. And he said, nope, I'm just going to get through this, and I'll talk to you when I get back. At the end of that week, he left and went home for Christmas break. Two weeks passed. He came back to school, and I saw him outside, and I'm like, James, how was it? How was it when you went home? And he said, well, when I got home, inside my house, everything seemed normal. Everywhere I looked, everything looked the same, and it was fine. But when I stepped outside of my house, everything was different. And he's like, it was so weird. And I'm like, that makes no sense to me. Like, you are talking gobbledygook. I have no idea what you're saying. And he said, no, Robin, you don't understand. When I came to school in the fall, my family moved, and I had to go home to a brand new city and a brand new place, and everything was different, and I don't do well with that. He said, I, I only, it only was the same when I was inside my house. And I'm like, doubly doesn't make sense. Like, if you moved, then wouldn't the house be different too? And he goes, no, Robin, they moved my house. I'm like, who does that? Like, they literally raised his home and put it on a truck and drove it 90 miles north up in Michigan and dropped it in a new plot on a new land. And I'm like, dude, that's crazy. Like, that, that doesn't happen. And he said, no, the craziest thing was when I was sitting at my kitchen table, that I grew up sitting at this table, eating my breakfast, looking out the window, and every time I looked out the window, I was facing north. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting at my kitchen table, and I'm eating breakfast, and I'm looking out the window, and I'm facing east. And he said, my whole life was messed up. Everywhere I looked, it looked the same and normal. But when I looked out the window, I was facing in the wrong direction. Is there not truth in those words? If our life isn't centered the way it is supposed to be centered... We find ourselves looking out the window and we're no longer facing true north because we've shifted just ever so slightly and now we're facing in a new direction when we're supposed to be facing this way 
We find ourselves facing this way. And do you know what happens when you face this way? You move this way. Because your eyes and your actions follow the direction that you're looking. And that's what the student was saying to me. Everything was screwed up because he was no longer facing true north. And it just was off. Something was off. You know, when we were growing up, I'm sure you had the same experience, and you hear the Christmas story told, Christmas plays. You all can picture it in your mind. You've probably even, if you're old enough, even been in a few, right? Back in the day when all the kids in Sunday school did the Christmas play. And you guys know it, right? You can picture it. Mary and Joseph are coming to Bethlehem. Mary's riding on a donkey. Joseph is walking next to her. They're coming into town. They're knocking on all the doors as they go. There's no room for you here. There's no room for you here. The inn is full. Keep moving. You can picture it, right? Because we were all there. We had that. And you know what it does to us? It creates this sense of, like, panic as we're reading the Christmas story, right? And it's like desperation. Mary's got to find a place. She's going to have that baby. Mary comes down off the donkey, and Mary and Joseph settle in a stable, in a barn, some say in a cave, and shazam, just like that. Jesus is born, and they place him in the manger. And that's what happens, right? They find Jesus placed in the manger, in this box, in a stable. Picture Charlie Brown Christmas. It happens every time, exactly like that. Can I just give you a side note here? For all the women in the house, I'm going to get a hearty amen to this. There is no way that is the way the Christmas story happened because we all know that you don't just suddenly say, oh, my baby's coming, firstborn and a boy, and like that, you have a baby. Like, it doesn't work that way. There's a process there for pushing that baby out into the world, right? But the story continues, and you can picture it. There's a kid in a cow costume. There's a kid in a donkey costume, maybe a couple of sheep, an angel or two to represent the multitudes, right? And then what happens? Some shepherds show up, and they go to the stable, and they kneel at the manger, and then three rambunctious middle school boys enter dressed like kings carrying gifts. We three kings of Orion are. Here we are with our gifts, right? That's how the story goes. That's how we know it. It's so cute for a Christmas play. But that's not the story of the birth of Jesus. That's not how it plays out in Luke chapter 2. But when that is the lens that informs our view of God and our view of Jesus and our view of the birth of Christ... We follow the lens, and we start to live our life like that from that lens because it informs our perspective that informs how we read the word. Ken Bailey is a historian who says this, the more familiar we are with a biblical story, the more difficult it is to view it outside of the way it has always been understood. That lens, that tradition that timeless telling of the Christmas story subconsciously informs how we read the narrative in Scripture. And when we turn to Luke chapter 2 and we read it, we picture 
those images that we were told and that have been passed down from generation to generation. But do you know what else it does? It takes Jesus and it puts him in a box. Because Jesus was born in a stable, in a manger, in a barn, and it takes the box and it puts it way over here because he was born outside, not inside. He was born over there, not over here where I am, but he was born way over there, removed from being surrounded by family, removed from being cared over and loved and wanted and, and looked after. He was all the way over there, and I live all the way over here. Jesus stays over there in a box, but he doesn't live right here in my heart because I'm reading the story wrong. The story is told that way with elements of truth because a novel was written in AD 200 by an anonymous author, and that is how the author told the story in the novel, with full of imaginative details surrounding the birth of Christ about the area, about all the characters who were in the play. And in that novel, Mary says, Joseph, take me down from the donkey because the baby presses me to come forth. And responding to that request, Joseph leaves Mary in a cave and goes to Bethlehem to find a midwife. And by the time he returns, Jesus has been born and a bright light is shining over the cave. And that story has been passed down for centuries and I'm sure it impacts the way we read the Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 2. Because we picture the story that we've been told subconsciously. It impacts the way that we see the world. And do you know what it does? It gives us a secular worldview instead of a biblical worldview. And we start to see the world that way. Now, in case any of you are panicking, I don't want you to panic. I'm not throwing out the birth of Jesus in any way, shape, or form. Like, the birth of Jesus is real, and it happened. But we have to be careful that we read it in Scripture the way Scripture tells us the story. And we allow Scripture to tell us what's true and not a novel that somebody wrote in A.D. 200, right? So we're going to read the Christmas story this morning in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read exactly the facts of how... Jesus was born, and I believe it's going to be up on the screen, Luke chapter 2. And so let's read that together, those first verses. At that time, I'll read it from there because I have a different translation. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. That is the true story of Jesus being born. All of that is true. So what is the difference? The difference from the story in Luke chapter 2 and the novel told in AD 200 is the position of the manger. It makes all the difference. When we read the story with the novel's perspective and the novel's position of the manger, we read the story with a sense of chaos and urgency, of not being cared for, of being turned away. We read that Mary had to travel all that way on a donkey because she was just hours away from giving birth to her baby. And that raises natural questions in us. The natural question is, where is God in that? Where is the protection of God in that story? Where are the people who are supposed to be taking care of their family? Where are they? Like, why didn't they show up, right? We read it that way. We also look at Joseph and we say, what is wrong with you, dude? Like, why would you put your fiance on a donkey when she's about to give birth? Like, who would do that, right? But that's the way we read the story because that's the way it's been passed down through tradition. We see Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem, and when we're reading it through the lens of the novel, what are they doing? They're frantically looking for a place to stay, and they're going door to door. And we interpret that as if saying, wow, people are awful. People shunned them. People turned them away. Nobody took care of them. They were dejected. They were not welcome. They were all alone in this. They had to live this out all by themselves. They weren't even worthy of a room. At least somebody gave them the barn, right? Like, that's our take of it because that's how it's been passed down. And again, do you know what it does? It makes us go, where is God? Have you ever looked at your life and said, where is God? Why is he not showing up? Well, that's coming from somewhere, a perception of something that's been planted in us. Jesus is put in the, in the manger out in the barn, and what do we imagine as we read that? stink. You can smell the manure, right? You can hear the cows. You can hear it. You can see the animals in your mind. All of that happening. They're isolated out in the barn. They're not surrounded by their family. They've got nothing but straw and cows. That's the image that we have as we read Luke chapter 2. And again, where is God? Where's their provider? 
where's their protector? It's how we read the story. The shepherds come and they go to the stable, they go to the barn, they go out back where they're allowed to see Jesus, but certainly not inside the house. They have to go over there. They're not even worthy of coming into the house. That's how we read the story. And that view subconsciously informs what we think about God. What we think is true about the nature and the character of God and the nature and the character of Jesus, it informs how we see God in our life, how we see God showing up. But we have to set that scene correctly because that's what the Bible does for us. It sets the scene correctly, Luke chapter 2. So we're going to go back through it, and we're going to set the scene correctly, right? So we have to ask a couple of questions. First of all, who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Well, Luke was written by Luke, right? That's why it's called Luke. Luke is the only Gentile author of the entire New Testament. Every other book in the New Testament is written by a Jewish person. But Luke is written by Luke, a Gentile. And these are the things we know to be true about Luke. He is a doctor. He's a Gentile. He's very educated. He speaks Greek because he's a Gentile. And he wrote the book of Luke in Greek. And he's trained to pay attention to the details. So he didn't just miss something when he wrote it down. He wrote down what he wrote down intentionally. We need to keep that in mind as we read it. Another thing that is noteworthy when we're reading through the Gospel of Luke and the story of the birth of Jesus is what was life like back then? We have to read it historically and culturally in context. And a Palestinian home during the time of Jesus typically looked very much like this as a floor plan. It was a single-story home, a single floor, and it had an opening door that came into a foyer or a courtyard. There were three steps up to the main floor, and it was just one floor divided into two rooms. The front room, it was considered the family room, the living room, and the back room was the guest room. The family room is where all living happened. They cooked there, they prepared their meals there, they ate there, they hung out there, they played bunko there. The family room is where they lived, and they all slept there. The entire family slept in the family room. The guest room in the back of the home was reserved for guests. When they had company, that's who would be in the back. The Greek word for guest room is Cataluma, and that is the word that Luke uses in chapter 2 when he says they came to Bethlehem and there was no room for them in the Cataluma, the guest room, not the barn, the guest room. When Mary and Joseph came to their family home, the guest room was already full. That's what we learn in Luke chapter 2. So remember, Luke is written in Greek by a man who understands the Greek language because it's his language. And so it wasn't a mistake. He didn't choose the wrong word. He chose that word intentionally. Luke uses the very same word in Luke chapter 22, verses 10 through 12, where he is telling the disciples to go into the city to follow the man who's carrying a jar of water into his house and say to him, 
the teacher says, where is the Cataluma, the guest room, the room where I am to eat the Passover? And the man will show you a large upper room that is already furnished, and there you make ready for the Passover. It's the same word. Where's the guest room? Where's the guest room? That's the room that is full in Luke chapter 2 when Mary and Joseph come to Bethlehem. When the Bible was translated into English, they took the word Cataluma and translated it in. A lot of translations say there was no room for them in the inn. In our American English language, when we hear inn, we picture Motel 6, right? And thus, the novel is born. There's no room, and they must... You know, the ends are full, so they end up in the barn. That's how that happened. But that word in as a motel is not consistent with the Greek language, Cataluma. It's a guest room. It's not an inn. The word for inn is a completely different word for a commercial inn. And it also isn't consistent with the historical setting of the time. Every home had a guest room. They all did. The guest room there was full. Luke tells us that Jesus was placed in the manger because the guest room was already full. We're going to come back to the manger in a minute, but we need to unpack that guest room for a minute. Hospitality was hugely important in this culture, hugely important. Every single home was built with a guest room. It was part of your building plan because it was expected that you would open your home to guests. It was, it was the culture of the day. You always made room for guests. If you had money, you may have even built a second floor on your home, and the entire second floor was your Cataluma. It was your guest room, like in Luke 22, where Jesus says he will show you the upper room, Cataluma. It was part of their DNA to have a guest room. And that is what Mary and Joseph would have found when they came to Bethlehem. They would have found that the guest room in their family home was full. Commercial inns were few and far between at that time. They weren't walking down the Vegas Strip seeing no vacancy signs on every hotel that they passed. That's just not the way that it was. The Greek word for commercial inn is pandoheion, and that is the word that means a public house for the reception of strangers. And Luke uses that word in Luke chapter 10 in this telling of the story of the Good Samaritan that he took him to the Pandohaean and paid for him to stay there, the commercial inn. Now remember, Luke, the author of the book, is Greek. He knows the language. He chooses the word for the guest room versus the word for the commercial inn. So it wasn't an inn. It was the guest room of the home that was full. So what happens? So Mary and Joseph can't stay in the guest room because it's already full. So the family would have naturally brought them in to the family room. And Jesus would have been born right there in the family room, surrounded by the family. Does that not shift our picture of God? God so loves us that he prepares the family room for you for you to be welcomed into. Mary and Joseph were not pushed out. They were welcomed in. 
They were not shoved out to the barn, but they were welcomed into the home. So how do we know that? We have to go back again, and we have to answer some questions. Why are they going to Bethlehem in the first place? Luke 2 tells us that Caesar Augustus had issued a decree that a census be taken, and they all had to return to their city of origin. Joseph was a descendant of King David, so Joseph had to return to Bethlehem, the city where King David was born, in order to register. Now stop the bus. What did that tell us in Luke chapter 2? Who is Joseph? A descendant of King David. Joseph, y'all, is royalty. There is no way they turned royalty to the streets. In his hometown, in the city of David, named the city of David because of King David. And here is Joseph, a direct descendant, coming and saying, we're here. You can bet every door in the town would have been swung wide open to him to welcome him in because of who he is. Historical memories are long at this time. Joseph would have had to do nothing other than say, I am Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathath, the son of Levi, and every door would have been open to him. It's as if the Prince of Wales walked into the room and we would have said, come to my house. Come on over. It's not clean, but you are welcome, right? Because it's royalty. We would have done that. As a royal, nearly every door in the village would have been open to him. The family of David was so famous in that town that they renamed the town the city of David instead of just calling it Bethlehem. He was honored and welcomed and royal to have him there. And what about Mary? Women at that time were, who were about to give birth were given special consideration in every single culture. There's no way they would have turned her away in her condition of being pregnant. That was unheard of. She would have been welcomed in, especially considering who she was engaged to. She was royalty. She would not have been turned away. If they would have turned her or Joseph away, it would have brought unbearable shame on the entire village based on their culture of hospitality. It just shifts the way that we read the story, doesn't it? Mary also had family living close by. Just three to six months earlier than that time when they arrived in Bethlehem, we read that Mary went to her cousin Elizabeth's home. And Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah Zechariah lived in the hill country of Judea. Bethlehem is in Judea. Bethlehem is surrounded by the hill country of Judea. So right outside of Bethlehem is Mary's family, who just three months earlier welcomed her into their home with open arms. It just does not make any sense that they would have now slammed closed the doors. It's just not the right setting. So they weren't in a stable out in the back, but they were in the family room. Not the guest room, because the guest room was full, but in the family room. So why then did Mary place Jesus in the manger? That doesn't compute, right? But the picture that I put up earlier of the Palestinian home, in that open space where you would walk into the foyer or the courtyard, had a multi-purpose. The family could gather there and do things during the day, but at night, that is where they brought their animals into to give them shelter and protection from whatever was happening outside. And also, when they brought the animals into the courtyard, 
The animals gathered in there provided the warmth for the entire house because there wasn't a wall between where, that, where it says stable mangers. That wasn't a solid wall. It was like a pony wall that was just built up, and they would go up the steps, and then they're on the floor. They could walk to the edge like this and look down, and there were the animals right there. So where do you think they put the manger? Right here on the edge so that the animals could graze throughout the evening as they needed to and they got hungry. So when Mary gives birth in the living room to Jesus and turns and places him in the manger, he's right there, right in the house. Here's the interesting thing about the manger. The manger was so important to the building of the home that often they would place the manger before they built the home, and they would build the manger right down into the foundation of the house and then build the house up around the manger. So where was Jesus? He wasn't out in the barn. No, Jesus was brought in and placed right in the center of the home, true north. When Jesus is in the center, then our perspective shifts because we start looking and facing in the direction we're supposed to look and face because this is where Jesus is supposed to be in our lives, right in the center, right in the middle of everything that happens. What we do with the manger matters. Where we put Jesus in our story matters because it will determine our direction. It will determine our perspective. It changes everything when we move Jesus from the stable to the house, from the outside to the inside, from the peripheral of our life to the center of our life. Everything shifts. Everything changes. Everything gets lined up the way it is designed to be lined up. We need that manger view, right? It shifts our perspective of Mary going from being neglected and ignored and cast out to being the person who is loved so deeply and so intimately that she is brought into the family room, not even the guest room, the family room. And she is put right in the center, not cast to the outside. It shifts our perspective of God. And we see that he truly was Mary's protector. He loved her so much that he had other family members arrive first so they could take the guest room so that when Mary got there, the place for her was in the family room. That's how much God goes before us. That's how God sees us and cares for us and overlooks us and protects us. That's the God that we serve. He is truly our protector. And that is the image that we have when we think about God coming to earth with flesh on through his son. That he came so that he would be right in the center of our lives. Not out in the barn. Not out in the garage on a shelf, in a box, but right in the center. And that's what God does. He invites us right into the family room. He invites us right in. Isn't that beautiful? We look back on the story of Mary's life when the, when the manger is positioned correctly, 
And it helps us see the hand of God on her life correctly. And we have the right position and the right perspective. And that's what happens when we put the manger in the right place in our life, too. We can look back on our past, and we can see the hand of God in our past correctly. Because if we don't have the manger positioned right, we might not actually see the hand of God right. We might think he removed it, or he didn't show up, or he didn't do what he said he was going to do, or he doesn't love us, or he has forsaken us, or he doesn't look after my day-to-day. But that's the wrong perspective. If we're having that perspective, our manger has shifted. We don't have it quite in the center. It's shifted a little bit off. We have to make sure it's correct so that we look at our past correctly, and we have to make sure it's positioned correctly so we look at our present correctly because it changes the way we see things. When the manger is in the center of the home and room for Mary was made in the family room and she wasn't cast away, she wasn't turned away, we can see that Mary and Joseph were welcomed in. They weren't shunned, they weren't shamed, but they were welcomed And that's the God that we serve. And we know that that's true because when Mary was three months pregnant and she went to visit Elizabeth, what did the baby do in the womb of Elizabeth when Mary stepped in? Leapt, right? The baby leapt for joy. They knew she was pregnant, and they welcomed her into their home. They didn't shun her. They didn't shame her. They welcomed her. Why? Because they had the right perspective of Jesus. They they knew the Messiah They had the right perspective, and it removed the shame. That's what happened to Mary, and that's what happens to us. When we have the right perspective of Jesus, there's no shame. Jesus covers the shame, right? That's what forgiveness is all about, is removing the shame. That's what happens when we have the right perspective. Joseph, same thing. When he found out that Mary was pregnant, he had two choices. He could send her away and say, I don't want anything to do with you. And she would have carried shame, the mark of shame, for the rest of her life. But Joseph had the right position of the Messiah in his life, and he walked in obedience to the Lord, and he welcomed her in, and it removed the shame. That's what happens when Jesus is in the right position, and we have the right understanding of Jesus, the right understanding of the Messiah in our life, it removes the shame, just like it did for Joseph and Mary. We can't always see what God is up to in our life. We go through hard stuff. If we said, when you follow Jesus, life is perfect, and you never have hard things, that would just be a bold-faced lie, right? That is just not true. Hard things happen. Our moms get cancer. We may get cancer. We lose our jobs. We lose our homes. The economy crashes. These things happen, right? We get hurt. Friends betray us. Children betray us. Families hurt us. Marriages fail. Hard things happen. The list is endless. But if you've put Jesus in a box out in your garage that you only pull out at Christmas time, you're going to go through those hard things very, very differently than if Jesus is the center of your home and the center of your life. When the, posi- when the manger is positioned correctly, we go through our present very, very differently than when the manger's out in the garage. So important that Jesus is in the center. 
When he's in the center, we can look at the unknown, and we can look at the crazy, and we can look at the disappointment, and we can look at the pain with this attitude that says, I may not see it now, I may not know what you're up to, God, but I know what you have done in my past, and I know that you will do it again in my present. I don't have to see it to believe it, I don't have to understand it to trust in you to know your character, to know you are faithful, to know that you are my protector, to know that you will show up. I trust in you, and I put you in the center. That is how we go through our present when the manger is in the right place, when the manger is where the manger belongs. It enables us to see the hand of God in our present. That's what happens. You all know this. We live in some crazy times right now, right? The stuff that's happening in Israel is crazy. The economy is crazy. It feels like it could just crash at any point in time and take us all out, right? We have a presidential election coming up that honestly, it doesn't matter who wins, left or right, nobody wins. Like, it, it is a crazy time for us. Our children's identity is on the chopping block. Public schools are trying to take it out. The government is trying to take it out. We live in crazy times. Social injustice is off the charts by record scale. It is a crazy time. Do you know what that crazy time does? It fuels fear and anxiety and worry and doubt and discouragement and depression. And if the manger isn't positioned correctly in our lives, we will take on a worldview that says God is out in the barn. God has removed his hand from my life. God is distant. God doesn't care about me. God isn't in my moment. That's what happens. But when we take that manger and we plant it and plant Jesus firmly in the center of our life, that view shifts to a biblical view that says God has always been the provider and he always will be. God has always been in control and he always will be. God has always had my back, and he always will. And I can go into the future full of confidence and peace and joy because my God is on the throne, and he is in the center right where he belongs. And God brings order to chaos. He brings calm to crazy, and he brings peace, and he brings joy. And we go to sleep at night, and we lay our head down, and we're out. And we can sleep. Because we know God. And we may not know what's happening, but we know God and we trust in his character. Because Jesus is in the center, right where he belongs, right? We can take that biblical view and we can bank on it. Because we know the end. We know how it's going to end. We know the alpha and the omega. And he hasn't changed. He's consistently there and the manger is in the center. When we position the manger correctly, it enables us to look for the hand of God in our future. We can step into it boldly and with confidence. And do you know what the results are in our life of a properly placed manger? This is the result. Christmas gifts for everyone. That's the result, right? And here's what those Christmas gifts look like. Peace, because we know that God is in control. Joy because we know that Jesus goes with us. Faith, because we believe and know that God will do what God says that he will do. Love, because we're able to see people the way that Jesus sees them. Patience, because we know that God's timing is perfect. 
always. Gentleness, because we know that we cannot force or manipulate or push the hand of God. God will move when God has determined it is time to move. And we go into the future with goodness, which is generosity, because we know that God will supply our need. He promised it, and he has not, not met a promise yet. He will do it. We go into the future with meekness, because we don't have to be right, or the person on top, or the one in charge, because we know the one who is always right, and is on top, and is in charge. And we go into the future with self-control, because we know that God has the day, because our manger is in the right spot. Jesus is in the center of our life, right where he belongs. Does that sound familiar, that fruit of the Spirit? When we've placed that manger correctly, the fruit of the Spirit becomes real, and it becomes tangible, and it becomes so relatable to what we're walking through, so relatable to our day-to-day. So can I just say this? We can't be 100% sure where the manger was, if it was in the house or in the stable or wherever, because even Luke is not a first-hand account of what happened. It's a second-hand account, right? All we can do is take the Word of God, the words that are written down, look at our, what we know from history, look at what the Greek words tell us, and take out of that our best speculation as to what it is. But it doesn't change the fact that God loved this world so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die for you and to die for me. That's the story. What we can do is determine today, what are we going to do with Jesus? That's the question. What am I going to do with Jesus? Where am I going to put the manger in my life? Am I going to put it on a box in my garage and pull it out when it's convenient and when I need it? Or am I going to plant it in the center of my life, in the center of my home? Am I going to build my foundation on Jesus 24-7, 365 days of the year, not just Advent, not just the Christmas season? That's really what the question is for us today. What are we going to do with Jesus, right? There is a movie Dirty Dancing, and there's a line in there that says, nobody puts baby in the corner. You all know that line, right? It's a great line. Probably one of the best lines ever in a movie. But can I just change that line today and say, nobody puts Jesus in a box. Can we just be a church? Can we be a people that says, we're not putting Jesus in a box. Jesus is not going in a box on the shelf in my garage. Jesus is going to be in the center of my life, in the center of my home, in the center of all that I do every day of the year. Because Jesus doesn't belong in a box. So here's what happens when we stop putting Jesus in a box, when we refuse to do that. We stop asking the question, is God big enough to do that? Because we've already taken Jesus out of the box. We know God is big enough to do that. Right? God can totally do that because he is bigger than any box that we could put him in. We stop fearing doing the thing that Jesus is calling us to do. Because not only do we take Jesus out of the box, we take ourselves out of the box too. Because if Jesus is out of the box, so am I. Right? Because Jesus is in me. So I'm no longer in the box. And I can do the thing that God has called me to do. And I can step into it with confidence. Those limits that we put on God, the limits we put on ourselves, and the limits that we put on other people explode when we take Jesus out of the box. 
That's what we are called to do. If ever there was a time to let Jesus out of the box, it is 2024. Can I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we need to take Jesus out of the box. We need to step out of the box ourselves. But here's the truth. You can't get out of your box if you've put Jesus in a box. You can't do it. You will always be in a box. And here's another truth. Jesus didn't leave the throne of heaven to be put in a box on the shelf in your garage. He left the throne of heaven to not be in the box, but to be in the center of your life. That's why he did it. That's why God sent him, because you matter that much that he wants to be the center of your life and the center of my life. Jesus didn't take on the sins of the world to be put in a box, but he took on the sins of the world, and he took on my sins, and he took on your sins so that he can live in the center of our life and that we can do life with him.